Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Matthew 8, uh, chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, and says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Isaiah chapter 40 um, says that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your uh, unchanging, um, unwavering, Uh, forever relevant uh, word that you have given us in the scriptures. Uh, We submit ourselves to your word today. Um, Thank you for um, telling us about who Christ is through your word um, by the spirit of God. And we pray today that the spirit um, would would convict, um, would comfort, uh, would, would challenge us, um, that the Spirit would bring clarity to our lives where there's maybe much confusion. Um, and, and so, so Lord, we, we, we realize that this morning um, our whole lives uh, are dependent upon you, um, even um, our ability to understand what your word says um, and even to decipher between the messages that the culture teaches um, and the message that your word teaches. Um, and so, Lord, we ask that you would help us in this time um, to, to understand these, these beautiful and profound truths. Help them draw us nearer to Jesus, uh, for, for that, is, that is the goal. Um, not to fill our minds, not to fill our intellect, uh, but to draw us ever nearer um, to the Savior. Uh, we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks for... Thanks for being with, with us today. Um, you know, that song that we sang, The Goodness of Jesus, Satisfied He is All That I Need, um, that song plays through my mind a lot. This morning I was thinking, uh, and, and I, I, I would venture to say, in fact, pretty confidently, although I'm not a mind reader, um, that the same would be true for you, um, is that Jesus has never once um, proven to be less than all that he says that he is. Never. Um, and so maybe there's an instance in your life where you think, well, yeah, there was this one time. Um, and, and I don't, we, we, as Thomas established early on, um, and as we even established through our singing, um, that though we are limited and frail, that Jesus is not. And so there may be times in your life where you've endured deep suffering. Uh, but, but I hope that you would be able to recall those times and say, hey, listen, even through that, even though things didn't work out the way that I wish they would have, um, ultimately, Jesus did not let me down, and Jesus was not anything less than what he said he is. Um, and on the other hand, I and you continually are much less than we think we are, right? Um, we, we are not, not anywhere near as awesome 
as we think we are at times. Um, but, but John chapter 3, verse 30 says something really wonderful that uh, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I think that's one of those reasons. One of the reasons why is because if Jesus is increasing in our lives and we're going to continually come into contact with the reality that Jesus is nothing less than what he claims to be. And that if, and that if I am in this life allowing myself to decrease, then, then when I let myself down or when other people let me down, then I know that I have a steady, sure anchor in Jesus, right? So he must increase, but I must decrease, is what John 3.30 says. We're gonna see something pretty powerful about who Jesus is today, um, who the word claims that he is. I want us to, I'm gonna say this a lot, especially through Matthew chapter eight and nine, um, that that I I don't want us to be unclear at all on who the Bible claims Jesus to be. Um, If that makes us fanatical or, or crazy, um, then that's exactly what we are. Um, if, 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 if that makes people who believe the Bible to be extreme about what it claims, then yes, that is exactly what we are and it is exactly what the Bible is because the Bible leaves no, no doubt, at least its stance, on who Christ is. Um, you may have doubts on who Christ is and you may do a lot of different things to, to diminish who Jesus is, but just know that those things don't come from the word. And the word, which is the top-selling book of all time across cultures and times, states very clearly and confidently who Christ is. Um, and, and this has eternal weight. I, I was listening to someone recently um, talk about an article that they read about a, about a pastor uh, that, talked, uh, that, that says, I preach on the topic of hell a lot. <laughs> and, the, and the interviewer said, why do you preach on hell so much? And and in a long story short, the, the one being interviewed said, because I want to continually remind my people that much is at stake. There is much at stake in this life. This life has consequence. This life has value and meaning. And so the word today, what we learn about Christ, is uh, what you do with Christ um, has utmost eternal consequence. And, and if you're not settled there now, I promise you one day everyone will be settled. They'll be with him or they will be separated. And so I want us to see who Jesus loves. And the reason why I set this up this way is because of the, the, the nature of the text that's before us. Um, and, and, and so I want us to, to really see this today, and, and that will make sense in just a little bit. But we have seen through the verses leading up to today's text that Jesus has authority over sickness and he has authority over his disciples, Matthew is is trying to establish for us out of Matthew 7, where the people are astonished with the teaching of Jesus because he spoke as one with authority. Matthew carries this idea of authority into Matthew chapter 8, saying Jesus not only has authority in his words, but Jesus shows by his works that he has authority. He shows by his actions that he heals sickness, that he commands those who follow him to follow him in such a way, and he has authority. And so we've seen that he has authority over sickness and over his disciples, and that those who would choose to follow him are those who are willing to count the great cost of following Jesus. So Matthew chapter 8 and 9 introduces us, like we've said already, to the miraculous works of Jesus and this remarkable call of Jesus. And so recall that through these two chapters, Matthew weaves um, within the narratives of miracles these sections of Jesus' teaching and even warning us at times. And today's text has us back in the miraculous works that Jesus performed, but this time not with illness, with nature. You see that? 
We've read the text today, and you say, okay, the ways that we've seen Jesus interact so far are with people. And there's people involved in this, but who Jesus interacts specific, what Jesus interacts specifically with is with nature, with the winds and the seas. And so Jesus has just come off of this section showing what three components of discipleship are, namely a call away from the crowds, a call to count the cost, and a call to commit completely to Jesus. And then the disciples are thrown right into the storm, literally. Not just the storms of life, but the literal storm on the sea, a physical, geographical, historical, real place. The disciples find themselves with Jesus. In fact, look at the detail. Um, we'll get to this more in just a little bit. Look at, the de- look at verse 18. When G- we're not, this isn't our text today, but I just, wanna, I just want you to see the detail that we're talking about like point A and point B here. We're talking about a map. Um, verse 18 says, Jesus saw a crowd around him and he gave orders to go over to the other side. And then look what happens in verse 28. You got all this stuff between 18 and 28. Verse 28, and when he came to the other side, we'll get to that text next week, but I just want us to see that like, we're not just talking in theory and we're not just talking about in some kind of, we're talking about point A to point B and a lot of things that happen in between, right? And, and all the while, Jesus gets them from where, he, where they are to where they're going, So I want us to just see that. Um, My task today with this text is very simple. Um, Actually, it is impossible. So how does that make sense, right? It's simple, but it's impossible. Um, So so maybe I should say that it is simple to state what my task is, um, but from there, it is only what we believe a profound work of the Holy Spirit that can awaken these truths of this text within us. Um, the, the, here's, here's my task stated. My task and the, and the task that the text give us is to show us from this text that Jesus is God. Wild claim, right? The, the, the task from the text and the point of the text is that Jesus is God. The reason why this must be a work of the Spirit within us is that this isn't something that we merely intellectually assent to or follow blindly. No, it is not simply about adherence to something, but about allegiance to someone, okay? It's not adherence to something, it's allegiance to someone. And what the text tells us this someone is that demands our allegiance, that deserves our allegiance is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Matthew has stated and he has supported with evidence. I mean, he's used, he's used genealogies. Remember how Matthew 1 opened up? He's used like cold, hard facts. He's not just making this stuff up out of thin air. He's saying there's a family tree here. How did he accomplish this without, uh, what's the website where you put your blood in a vial and you send it off? What are those weird things? Ancestry.com. No, Matthew just knows this, and he traces this back for us, and it's better than any DNA test. It's the word of God. Better and more dependable than any DNA test. And so Matthew has shown us and supported for us all through his book that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. In this section, Matthew deepens his claim to us that Jesus is not only Messiah, but is God. 
Jesus is God, and we're going to see that here in just a second. So here, this is what I did a couple weeks ago, because when we go through this passage of Scripture, Matthew 8 and 9, and we start looking, about, looking at all the stories of healing and miracles, um, the, the, the modern church has done all sorts of really weird things with texts like this. Um, they've, they've made catchy punchlines about, you know, just step out of the boat, you know, go, go chase your tomorrow, go chase your, you know, all those things. If you've been to one of those churches, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and so it's important for us to know what this text is and is not about um, and what we'll do with the text and what we will not do with the text. Here's a couple things real quick, just short fire. And, and, and at first they're going to make sense, but we'll play them out. What this text is not about is your life storm. It's not about your life storm. It's not about the storm of your life. Um, it's not about your valley or your challenge. It's not about how Jesus prescriptively acts in all storms or his promise to heal or alleviate all of your challenges. Um, some, some, something that I heard somebody say one time is like the, the foolishness of the prosperity gospel is not only that it's not biblical, but it doesn't match up with anyone's actual experience. That so so have, you heard of the, have you heard of something called the Wesleyan quadrilateral? Yeah. You, you've, you've, got, you've got something that's called the, the, the hierarchy of, of truth, really. And what sits at the top is Scripture. Scripture is, the, is our ultimate authority. And then it also gives us a few other things that, that we, may, um, we may be able to, to, to help understand some things of life, that we've got Scripture as our highest authority. We've got church history that serves for us, not as, not as, uh, not as uh, infallible or inerrant in any way, but we've got a, a way that the saints have behaved and acted all throughout Scripture, based, uh, all throughout history, based on what they believe about Scripture. And that can be a pretty good, like, if, if someone shows up in 2022 and has uh, something brand new that no one's ever done before, that person's probably crazy. And so church history can serve as a good resource for us. Uh, reason, our, our mind, our reason. We live in a time where, where reason is seen as the highest authority, Right? that we can just reason our way out of things. Um, and then fourth on this quadrilateral or this hierarchy is experience. That's really the thing that culture has so elevated beyond the authority of Scripture that you, whatever your experience is, you can do. And so all of that to be a really fancy way, this is something really interesting to look into. All of that to say is that no one's like, like if, if the lowest thing on that hierarchy of authority is experience, and it's not even one of the top three, we know that Scripture doesn't say that God will always heal and always act in this way. We know that history shows us that people have died and suffered deeply for their faith. Reason would show us if these things are true, then maybe it's going to be true for me too. And experience, no one has ever experienced a life without challenge, Right? And so the prosperity gospel is foolish, not only because it's not biblical, but because it's no one's experience. <laughs> no one's ever actually experienced this. And so this text is not about Jesus prescriptively acting in every circumstance like he's going to heal you. And if you just have more faith, he'll do it. Does faith play a big part? I believe so. Absolutely. But is this the way that God always acts? I would have to say no. 
It's also not about the seriousness of the storm that is in the text or the region or the geography or the meteorology of the storm. You know, there's a lot of really interesting things that you can read uh, commentary-wise on this region of the world, and you can see how, you know, the, the way the wind comes over the mountains and to the sea, like it just makes this, this area very, uh, very, uh, very shaky and very rocky. And those are things maybe to, to consider, but, but let me just say that I cannot overstate I know you're just like, move on, Pastor. I cannot overstate, obviously, right? Because I'm definitely overstating, I think. I cannot overstate how devastating life will be for us if we have this idea in our minds that Jesus will act in a particular way in every storm we face in life. Life will be extremely devastating and heavy for you. But here's the thing also. I also can't overstate how much comfort, how much deep transcendent, unexplainable comfort and peace that we will experience if we are deeply aware that Jesus is the one who is with us in those storms. The text is not about the storms of life that you face. It's about who is with us in them. It's about the kind of God that is there, okay? I don't know about you, but in, in, in life's most difficult times, most of the time, I don't doubt God's existence. What I doubt is what kind of God are you? Are you a God who is present or are you a God who is disengaged? Are you a God who loves or are you a God who is angry? Are you a God who is compassionate or are you a God who is vengeful towards me? And so the the, the point of this text is not about how God acts in every single one of your storms and your trials, but the kind of God that is with us in those storms. That's what this text gives us. That's the question. By the way, if you're like, how did you get there? I'll tell you exactly how I got there. Because it's the question that the disciples are left with after Jesus acts. Look at the text. The question that the text gives us and concludes with is, is not, whew, that was a close one, Right? The question and the state the, the, the question that this text concludes is, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? That's the point of the text, is that question. And Matthew is helping us to, to answer that. So the focus of the story is a person, not an event. Uh, but there is also a promise that we must see and confidence that we may have because of who the person is. And so let's just walk through this text together briefly this morning. I don't have tidy points like I sometimes do, but we're pretty much just going to walk through this text. And this is why you need your scripture. So uh, you, you get there. I'm going to take a drink. And y'all are thinking, y'all are thinking I'm already there. So let's look at this text, verses 23 through 25. Let's just look at the event. Let's look at what happens. Let's look at what happens out on the sea. Uh, Verses 23 to 25 says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. So like we've already said, this this section picks up where, where, where verse 18 leaves off. So 18 happens. Let's go to the other side. Uh, two guys come to Jesus. I, we don't know what that looks like. Maybe Jesus is like walking to the boat and these two guys come up and just kind of like pull on his shirt and say, hey, hey, I'm gonna follow you. And, and Jesus says what he says. Um, and then it says here in 23, they make it to the boat. 
they make it to where they were headed. And so what, what, what this story features, this section, 20 through 28, it features these disciples who got into the boat, and it tells of their very early experience in following Jesus. Talk about hitting the ground running, Right? Talk about Jesus talking about the cost of discipleship and then hitting the ground running. Like these guys, like they didn't even, Jesus didn't give them, I've got children. And so we know like the value of those, uh, uh, what do you call like the pools that start out like at your toes and then you just slowly wade in, like a wading pool? Is that what you call it? Yeah. Jesus does not in any way give these these people a, a, a wading pool. He gives them what uh, I did to my son, Bo, last summer, who knew how to swim and would not get in, and I just had to throw him into the deep end. Once he hit the water, he was like, I can swim. Got this. Jesus doesn't give them a wading pool. He, he says, the cost will be great. Committing to me will be difficult. And what happens? They go onto the sea, and it says there was a great storm. So Jesus says that choosing to follow him entails counting the cost Commit, committing completely to him, and then right away this happens. Remember what we've said over and over again, um, that Jesus is the king and the leader, but maybe not the one that we'd expect. I don't know about you. Jesus is rarely the king and rarely the one that I expect. And I think the world has a vision in their mind of what Jesus is, and rarely is he what we would expect or what we might even hope for. Jesus is not the one who is going to capitalize on every scenario in a way that the worldly wisdom would expect. Nonetheless, his disciples have responded in a way that Jesus has claimed that true disciples would. What's it say? They follow him. And so verses 24 and 25, let's, let's look at, uh, we've already looked at 24 and 25. They, so they follow him, and verse 24 says what? That they encounter a what? Need some cooperation, some interaction here. Encounter a what? A great storm, not just a storm, a great storm, a storm great enough. Have you thought about this? A storm great enough that would cause skilled fishermen, people who are used to the sea, to essentially say, this is it. We are toast. We're done. Yet, what does the text tell us? Where is Jesus? He's asleep. Jesus is asleep. Jesus has shown himself to be a great teacher. Jesus has shown himself to be a great healer, and now he is in a great storm with his followers. He's in a very great storm. So sure, Jesus teaches well. Sure, he heals people well, but certainly Jesus has met his match with nature, right? Certainly, this is it. Well, Matthew shows us how Jesus responds. The text says that they, they woke him up. The, the storm didn't wake, if you thought about this too, the storm didn't wake Jesus up. His disciples did. This this storm that's raging all around them, Jesus doesn't wake up in the storm. The text says they woke him up. They went and they woke him up saying, save us, Lord, for we are perishing. Jesus could have slept right through this whole thing. And then we see verse 26. We see see a rebuke here. Notice something. Um, At least from this text, we don't see two rebukes. We see one rebuke. So let's, let's read verse 26. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So Jesus woke up, and he got right to work calming the storm, right? Wrong. He didn't get right to work. You'd think, Jesus, 
wake up. We've come to you with this request. Wake up and do the thing that we asked you to do. Does Jesus immediately get? No, it's like Jesus takes a sidestep and teaches them, just let me teach you something here, disciples. Jesus takes, takes a little detour and addresses their fear and he highlights their faith. It's interesting that in this chapter, remember Matthew is not just some, uh, some strung together uh, events. It's a very intentional message that Matthew is trying to share with us who Jesus is and the way that he interacts with people. So it's interesting that in this chapter, Matthew records the, the such faith of a centurion. Remember in, in verse, uh, where is that? In verse, verse 10, um, truly, I, he said this to a, to a Roman centurion. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And so it's interesting in this chapter, Matthew records the such faith of a centurion who's a Gentile and an enemy to the people of God and refers to the little faith of the disciples. Those who are following, just, just interesting, I don't, we, we don't have time to get into all that, but here's what we need to know. Here's what we need to hear. Notice that Jesus doesn't berate them for waking them up. I don't know about you, but when my children wake me up at night, it, it, like my first, like, just know, they, they need to know that they're starting in the negatives, just, just for the fact they've woke me up. Like you're, you're, you're starting a little bit with the, hand, the, the, the deck stacking. Now, what you're asking me may be very much a need, and, and, and that, hopefully in that moment, you'll, you'll jump to the positives. But just know that if you wake me from a deep sleep, you're in the hole. And so what you have to say to me better be, better be good, okay? Jesus doesn't berate them for waking him up, does he? Now, maybe he did, but we don't, we don't see that. I, I don't think that that would be who Jesus is. And here's what I want us to see by this. I think this is a biblical principle for us to acknowledge, and I really want you to hear it, church family, family. Like, I'm not talking to you as a, a rabbi teaches students. I'm talking to you as a, as a family that I want us as a family to know who Jesus is in this way. And this is the lesson that I want us to hear. Our God is one who can be bothered. I'm not saying that's the point of this text, but just from the response, just from what the disciples did to Jesus and the way that he responded and the way that he addressed their deepest need, I believe that God is one who can be bothered. Now, why can I say that? Because there's another parable and a whole other book, I believe in Luke, about the persistent widow. And, and literally, Jesus is telling the story, trying to teach us this lesson that she just kept coming and coming and coming and coming to this king and kept asking and asking and asking. And finally, because he was fed up with her, he just gave her what she needed. And Jesus is telling this in a way for us to understand is, hey, you can come to God over and over and over again, and, and, and God's not gonna get fed up with you. He's going to delight to give you good things. Now, we're not gonna unpack all of what good things means. Just, just remember what we said at the beginning. It doesn't always mean prosperity. It doesn't always mean everything that we attach to it. But Jesus, in this moment, allows himself to be bothered. Uh, Matthew Henry says about this, that Jesus did not chide them for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. You hear that? Jesus, Jesus did not chide them for disturbing him with their prayer, 
Lord, we're, we're, we're dying, we're perishing. Jesus doesn't chide them for disturbing him with their prayers, but for allowing themselves to be disturbed by fear. That shows a God who is deeply compassionate, a God who is deeply aware of our need, a, a God who is deeply, deeply feels the things that trouble us. And, and so notice that in this text that Jesus reproves them. I don't know that from this text we can necessarily say that he rebukes them. Maybe we could argue over that. I think what's happening in this text is that Jesus reproves them. He gives them an opportunity to see you're fearful. But then, guess what? Look what Jesus does. He delivers them. He delivers them. He, he reproves and then delivers. And so when Jesus has little faith here, I don't think that Jesus is stating that we will never wrestle with our faith. I don't think that Jesus is, is saying that we will never have doubts. I sure hope not. I, I don't know about you. I sure hope that's not what he's saying. Not that my experience trumps the scriptures, but I also know that I deal deeply at times with, with doubts, and my faith isn't always strong. We sing a song, when I fear my faith, how does that, when I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. I don't think Jesus is so much saying that these men have no faith, but that the faith that they have is almost completely useless for a time like this. Hey, do you want your faith to be effective? Do you want your faith to carry you in these moments? And it's in these moments where this is Jesus telling us how worthy he is of our trust. I think this is Jesus saying, hey, yes, even in this storm, I'm worthy of your faith. Yes, even in this, like, yes, just a minute ago, we were on the shore. I don't know about you, but I'm, I've got, I've got uh, I feel like I'm, my faith is the strongest when I'm at 40,000 feet. And I'm just like, Lord, please let my feet touch the ground again. One little bump. And I, I think that at some level, Jesus is saying, hey, listen, if the faith that I'm calling you to, if this way of discipleship can only hold you up while you're on the shore, and not while you're in the storm, then, then what kind of faith is it? And, and Jesus isn't saying, I don't think so much something about their faith, but about his worthiness to be trusted. About the fact that, yes, these times too you can be carried. These times too I'm worthy of your trust. I'm worthy of your faith. Even when you don't understand, even when things don't make sense, I am worthy of your trust, Jesus says. And so let me, let me just throw this out. And I don't wanna sensationalize the text in any way. Please know that's not what I'm doing. Because if, if you think I'm sensationalizing the text, come back in a couple of months when we're talking about hell. I'm not gonna sensationalize this. It's, it's, it's truly what, what I, after studying and reading this text all week long, something that, that I think that we, we might be able to take from this text. Is it possible that more than a harsh rebuke by Jesus, that this is actually a loving invitation to trust him? Is it, is it possible that rather than Jesus berating these men for their little faith, that he's actually inviting them to trust him even in this moment? Man, what a, what a sweet invitation, Right? What a sweet invitation that in the, these moments of doubt and fear and trembling, that, that Jesus is lovingly inviting me to trust that he is worthy of all of my trust.
that he is worthy of it. Man, I love that. Where does the text say that Jesus' rebuke is directed? Do you see that from the text? Did, did, did you, at least Matthew doesn't say that Jesus rebuked the disciples. Now, I'm not saying I don't want to be semantic or, or I don't want to argue over terms or anything like that, but Matthew does clearly say where the rebuke is directed. And where is that rebuke directed? Is it towards the disciples? No, it's towards the storm. It's towards the storm. Jesus rebukes the storm just as he rebukes demons, just as he rebukes sickness, just as he rebukes death. And guess what happens immediately? The text says there was a great calm. Look at the the wordplay here by Matthew. In verse 24, to explain the intensity of the storm, Matthew says it's a great storm. In verse 26, to explain the stillness of the storm, he says a great calm. There is a a, a, a storm beyond human comprehension that these men are going through. And at the very end, there is a stillness around them beyond comprehension that these men are experiencing because of what Jesus is able to do. And then kind of our, our last focus in this, and it's really the, the overarching focus of this section and even this whole text, of this whole chapter so, so we looked at, the, we looked at the, the, uh, the event, the storm, the rebuke, not of the disciples, but of the, of the, of the storm. And then, the, and then the, the final thing that we set our eyes squarely on is the man, Jesus, the point of the text, the point of the Bible. Hey, let me just, let me just say something. Um, this, this, this book's not about you. Um, this, this Bible is about a man, Jesus, and, and, and let, me, let me see something real quick. If you have a Bible, you can turn to, to, to page uh, 803 and then the little blank pages. Jesus doesn't show up here. See that? If you're reading your Bible and Jesus all of a sudden just shows up, I can't even keep it up. Unlike Jesus, who he's always up, right? So Jesus doesn't show up here. And, and there's nowhere to be found here. If you're reading your Bible in a way that Jesus only shows up here, we're not understanding our Bibles. The, the, the word, the scriptures are about Christ. God, God declares a gospel message in Genesis chapter three, right? In the garden, where he, Genesis 3.15, what historically has been called the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, the first the first declaration, the first proclamation of the good news. Genesis 3, somebody turn there. Sorry, this is, this is free. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, God's not just talking about Cain and Abel and Seth there. He's saying, from your line, from your offspring will come the Redeemer. From your offspring will come the one who makes all things new. Yes, Satan, you might get a little, a little nip at his heel, but what's more deadly most of the time? A foot wound or a head wound? A head wound. And, and God says, hey, you, you, might, you might get a little, little piece of his foot, but he will crush your head. 
So the point of the Bible is Christ. The point of this text is not my storm. It's not, 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 the, not the level of my faith, the depth of my faith, how much faith I have in God. No, it's about the one who is with us in the storm, the one who accompanies us in our suffering. And so as riveting as it is, the point of the story is not the storm nor the calm. It's, it's the man. The disciples, the disciples don't say, how'd you do that? <laughs> right? It's a, Jesus, show us how. In fact, Jesus later will give them authority to, to heal and to do miracles, right? And so we know that's coming. But the disciples don't stop and be like, that's awesome. No, their response is, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. The, the Jewish people, um, those, those, of, those of the disciples who were Jews and those who would have later been reading Matthew's account. We kind of talk about the book of Matthew being after the life of Jesus. Just so you know, this isn't like a live, a live recording of, of the life of Jesus. This came years after the death and the resurrection of Christ. Matthew's writing a, a, a gospel account, what is, what is thought to be primarily to a congregation, to a church, to a, to a, to a crowd of either Jews or people deeply familiar with the Jewish faith. And so Matthew's presenting this account of the gospel to, to sharpen their faith, to say, hey, you've, you know, you've, you've believed in this Messiah, you've believed in this Savior, let, let me just lay out what, who he is. And so these Jewish people, they would have deeply been deeply aware that the Jewish God, Yahweh, was the only one who had the power to rule winds and the waves. So the, the, the Jewish people, they would, have been, like, uh, they, they would have been very familiar with the fact that Yahweh has control of the winds and the waves. And, and you're saying, how do I know that? Well, let's turn to the book of Psalms. These are great passages, and I highly recommend you go there. In fact, I'm going to ask someone to read. I've got two texts. Uh, someone grab Psalm 89, 5 through 9. You're going to read aloud, um, and then someone's going to read Psalm 107, 23 through 32. Psalm 89, 5 through 9. Would someone take that? Thanks, Al. You hear that? Psalm 85, 9. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. This is the, this is the, the Jewish songbook. The Psalms are the songbook of the people of God. They declare, as, as it says, they declare in the assembly, in the gathering of the people of God. They declare how great he is and that God rules the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Someone have Psalm 107, 23 through 32? It's a little bit longer of a passage, but 
Let's, let's, let's be in the book. Thank you, Isaiah. So these men, the people hearing this account of the gospel of Jesus, they know Psalm 107, verse 29. And they declare that only God can do this. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. I love what Psalm 20, uh, 20, uh, let's see, 26 and 27 say, they mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and they were at their wits end. That sounds a little familiar to today's text, right? Does it sound like these disciples were at their wits end? Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. So these men, very familiar with the truth about who God is, look at Jesus and they say, who is this man? Who is this? That even the winds and the seas obey him. Who, who is this man? Only God can do this, right? Only God can do this, but this guy speaks a word and this Happens, And so you could expect and assume that Matthew is recording a very leading question for us. Don't you just love leading questions? He's asking a very leading question. Who is this man? Matthew's saying he is the Messiah. But in this text, he's saying he is God. He is God. He is who our foundational faith recall about great Yahweh. That's who this Jesus is. In fact, just to, to, to bear down on a little more, I can't wait for the next two sections. The next two miracles that Jesus performs, they're not merely physical healing. So up until this point, Jesus healed sickness. There have been implications for these people to respond and, and worship and devotion and service to God, to Jesus in this but from here on out, the, the, the miracles that Jesus performs are not merely physical healing, but of Jesus addressing the spiritual and the demonic realm, and then one of my favorite sections in all the scripture, Jesus forgiving sin. Jesus forgives sin. And, and Matthew leaves us with the question again, technically speaking, who is this, who can, who can forgive sin except for God? It's kind of like the question that they say, who can calm the seas but God? In Matthew 9, who can forgive sin but God? Who can still the storms and seas? God. The text shows us that Jesus has ultimate authority over creation and nature. 
And I want to close today by reading really an astounding statement by Paul from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Let's stand and read this together. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. If you're using those Bibles and seats in front of you, it's on page 983. Let's, let's listen to how Paul answers this question, who is this man? The scriptures say, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Hey, I hope, church, I hope, church, that we are very clear on who Christ is. That we are very clear on who is the head of us, who is the head of this church. And I, that's, that's who we worship. That's who we respond to. That's who has saved us. That, the beautiful part about Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is that it gives us the, the great and glorious realities of who Jesus is just in his nature. The next section's about his forgiveness of us that this great, mighty, holy God came and purchased salvation for us, that while we were alienated and hostile in mind, he is reconciled in his body of flesh by his death to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That great, holy, mighty God is our, is our savior, the one who gave his life so that sinners may be reconciled to a holy God. Man, what a beautiful thing. Who is this man? Jesus, he is God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for, for your word that you have given to us. Father, we thank you for your word that you have preserved. Your word says in, the, in Psalms um, that, that your words are, are holy words and you will preserve these words and you have preserved these words for us to know who you are for us to know who Christ is, for us to be aware of who we are before Christ and, and after Christ, who we, who we were before we were saved and who we are now as children of the living God. So Lord, we, as the church, we, we operate in that. Lord, I pray that, that as, as we come together this morning and Lord, our, our hope is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Lord, I also acknowledge that there may be people in here who don't know your son, Jesus. And, and Lord, you've, you've brought them here. You've allowed them to sit under your teaching. You may, they may not be aware or fully embrace the grace that you give to all men, but Lord, it is a grace of yours to have them even sitting under the word. And so I pray that you would pierce their hearts and Lord, that they would trust in what your son Jesus has done for us. We pray these things in his name, amen.